The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption. You are listening to 90.7 KBOO, KBOO Community Radio. This is the beloved community. On the beloved community, we address the philosophical and spiritual foundations for nonviolence, activism, political engagement, and peace building. We also hear voices who are building the beloved community right here in Portland. The goal is to gain inspiration, solidarity, wisdom, and insight for your own activism. I'm John Schock. You can contact me through my website, progressivespirit.net. On this pilot edition of The Beloved Community, I speak with three people. Each of them brings a unique voice and perspective to building the beloved community. Marianne Williamson is a New York Times best-selling author, lecturer, and activist. She will discuss the spiritual foundations of the beloved community as we discuss her latest book, Tears to Triumph, The Spiritual Journey from Suffering to Enlightenment. And that's also why Martin Luther King said, the political desegregation of the American South is the political externalization of the, uh, uh, of the goal of the civil rights movement. He said, but the ultimate goal is the establishment of the beloved community. Because what he knew is that, yeah, you can desegregate the South, but the fact that there is segregation is itself a symptom rather than a cause. The cause is racism, and that is an internal reality. And so only the establishment of the beloved community, the purification of consciousness, will root out the problem on the level of cause so that these symptoms will not continue to simply morph and reappear. G. Scott Brown is the co-founder of the Colorado Center for Restorative Practices. He was formerly an activist for Greenpeace and now brings the principles of nonviolence to all of his social justice work. He'll be in Portland August 16th to discuss his latest book, Active Peace, A Mindful Path to a Nonviolent World. People want to know, what would you do if, if you sat down to lunch with Donald Trump? <laughs> you know, that's very present in people, and it's very real. And so I talk about all of these, all of these qualities and these capacities as a way that might inform a meeting like that, that I am not going to change Donald Trump's worldview over lunch. But what I can do is just really try to be present to, to him and speak my truth in a way that's, that's authentic and honest and strong and also just bear witness to his truth without feeling like I have to fix it because I can't. More details on Scott's visit to Portland at his website, 4activepeace.com, the number 4activepeace.com. And we will close the hour speaking with Jenna Yokoyama. Jenna is a co-host of the KBU program, Pacific Underground, that airs every fourth Friday at 11 a.m. She will discuss the Asian American experience in Portland, including why it's problematic to use phrases such as the Asian American experience. And I find that's the same kind of thing with racial relationships here. We think, wow, we're really progressive. And it is progressive, but it tends to be a politically progressive place for white people. Mm -hmm. And so you have to constantly be breaking down these barriers and explaining to people who view themselves as progressive and view them as liberal and saying like, look, you may love your, you know, green waste bin, and that's great. But that doesn't mean that people aren't experiencing racism. Somehow that's connected, and, and you're constantly having to break this concept. Together, let us build the beloved community. Seven of her 12 books have been on New York Times bestseller lists. Four have been number one on that list. You can see her on Oprah, Larry King Live, Bill Maher, Good Morning America, and Charlie Rose. You can watch her live each Wednesday on live stream through her website, Marianne.com. Her latest book is Tears to Triumph, The Spiritual Journey from Suffering to Enlightenment. She's with me via Skype from New York. Welcome, Marianne Williamson, to the beloved community. Oh, you're welcome. When I was contacted by your publicist about Tears to Triumph, the first thought that went through my mind was Marianne Williamson. She's the one who said, uh, our greatest fear is not that we're inadequate. Our greatest fear is that we're powerful beyond measure. And, and I've used that quote, and now I get to talk to you about it. Uh, so I have two questions. 
Why is our greatest fear that we are powerful beyond measure? And is there a connection between that thesis and this, your latest book, Tears to Triumph? Well, the paragraph that you mentioned that begins our deepest fear is from my book, A Return to Love. And that book is subtitled Reflections on the Principles of A Course in Miracles. So the principle itself, that we're more afraid of our light than of our darkness, is from the Course. And the Course is a psychological training. It's not a religion. It's no dogma or doctrine. But it's based on universal spiritual themes. And the spiritual theme there is that it is our spirit that is the fundamental truth of who we are, not our bodies. Our bodies are like a suit of clothes. And identifying with the spirit seems frightening to us because the physical eyes can't see it, the physical ears can't hear it, the physical uh, senses don't perceive it, the physical hands don't touch it. And so the ego mind, which is the mind that attaches us to, to the belief that we're just bodies, is constantly warning us not to go there with everything from it's a fantasy to you'll go crazy. It, it, it's like crazy territory. But the real crazy territory is what happens mentally and then materially as a manifestation of this when we over-identify with the material plane. So what we fear is what we should be embracing, and what we should be fearing is what we are embracing. And that is this very limited construct that all we are is bodies and all that's going on in the world is the material. Now when you ask me what is the relationship between that and tears to triumph, there is a direct relationship. Because when we do identify ourselves only with the mortal plane, we are actually miscreating with our thoughts because our consciousness at a fundamental heart level knows that this is not who we are. Who we are is love. Who we are is beings of love. We have a purpose on this earth and that is to love each other. When we identify only with the material plane, we dissociate from that otherworldly transcendent function and we move into mental dimensions of chaos and randomness. And within that, we suffer. This is why Buddha said life is suffering. It's the meaning metaphysically of Moses delivering the Israelites from the Pharaoh who is that internal slave driver. It's the meaning of Jesus suffering on the cross, suffering on the trials and the tribulations of the material plane. So yes, the tears that we cry are all due to the fact that we are misperceiving who we are and misappropriating our own mental forces and basically living in a kind of spiritual blindness, not in touch with who we are, not in touch with any sense of an otherworldly or transcendent identity, which makes us completely fractured in our relationships with the rest of the universe, with the earth and with each other. The way out of that, the journey out of that is the spiritual path and that is the return to love. It is the return to the realization that we're, we're not here to fight each other. We're here to love each other. This is KBOO 90.7, KBOO Community Radio. You're listening to The Beloved Community. I'm John Schock. My guest is Marianne Williamson. She's the author of Tears to Triumph, The Spiritual Path from Suffering to Enlightenment. You know, I so appreciate uh, the inclusiveness of your spirituality, as you just mentioned. You draw from spiritual figures uh, such as Jesus, Moses, Buddha, A Course in Miracles, many others. Can you talk a little bit about your own journey, not just your path to become a successful author and lecturer, which you are, but who or what gave you the nudge or permission to, to find your spiritual voice, your authentic voice? Well, I'm Jewish, and within Judaism, there is... Uh a great social justice component, uh, to kun olam, to repair the world. So I think I'm, I'm not someone who had to get over any childhood programming. My childhood programming set me up for what I think is a very healthy uh, spiritual perspective, that we are of God and that God has expectations of us, and that those expectations are that we use our minds and use our life force the way it is intended to be used. So when I, I, whether it was the Course in Miracles or activism on the external planes, all these things were comfort zones for me and are comfort zones for me because my basic spiritual and religious upbringing supports 
both the notion of trying to be who God would have us be, as well as the notion that we are here to do as God would have us to. You describe yourself as an author, a speaker, and an activist, and there's an tendency among uh, many spiritual leaders to kind of bypass the social conditions and that contribute to suffering and think that the spiritual life is, is strictly uh, internal. But you write in your chapter, A Culture of Depression, that uh, we are depressed collectively. Uh, how do you see that connection between the personal and the collective? Politics is just one more era, area of human endeavor and human relationship. And if spirituality applies to anything, it applies to everything. So when you say that many spiritual leaders bypass it, when you actually talk about my colleagues who are the leaders in this field, they're not apolitical necessarily at all. I know these people behind the scenes. Uh, I, I don't, they're not an apolitical bunch. They do not, in the cases where they do not bring it into their work, because that is their decision not to, and that is not for me to judge, that doesn't mean that they themselves aren't as active on these issues as anyone else is. Now, there is a trend among the population of the modern higher seeker, which definitely does what you're talking about, but I don't think that that's led by the most successful leaders in this field. I have to say, in sort of defense of my colleagues, I think that there is this poppycock out there, this faux spirituality that has denial confused with transformation, that thinks that you get rid of the darkness by not engaging it, by ignoring it. But that's simply, there is no serious religious or spiritual tradition that gives anyone a pass on addressing the suffering of other sentient beings. So that silliness is out there. But number one, I don't think it's led by the main writers and speakers in, in this area. And it's, it's, it's simply something to be challenged. It's kind of ridiculous, actually. You know, somebody was saying to me the other day, he said, well, I went to a spiritual counselor and she really made me focus on self-love. And I laughed. I, I guffawed. This idea that spiritual love is self-love. No, it's not. Spiritual love is love for all living things. That's spiritual love, which is the ultimately the only way to love yourself, because at the deepest and highest level of spiritual realization, we realize that that is who we are. We are each other. So the idea that self-love is the essence of spiritual love is, is an example of what you're talking about, this, this ego-concocted uh, appropriation, uh, which most organized religion is actually, of the spiritual themes meant to deliver us, used to imprison us further. Well said. Let's talk about the opposite end of that. What is the danger of a lot of political activism without attention to the spiritual? Well, I, I, I wouldn't so, go so far as to call it danger, but as Gandhi said, the end is inherent in the means. That's, that's, that was a real big, important principle of nonviolence. If the vehicle is not nonviolent then the, the product of, of our efforts, if the vehicle, meaning my consciousness, is not nonviolent, then the product of my efforts will not be nonviolent. Everything we do is infused with the consciousness with which we do it. So in that sense, an angry generation will not bring peace to the world. So what I learned as a student of these things is that the, the guns I had to get rid of, first and foremost, were the guns in my own head. You know, you see it in today's political climate. All these people who are, quote-unquote, hating the haters. Well, if you're hating the haters, you are a hater. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it, it's, there's an internal, as, as Martin Luther King said, we need quantitative shift in our circumstances and a qualitative shift in our souls. It's both and. So from a perspective of Gandhi, and of course the Gandhian principles, of Martin Luther King went to India, he studied those principles. He brought them to the United States for uh, application to the civil rights uh, movement in the 1960s. It's very much about clearing our, our hearts of violence, it, it, not only as well as ridding the world of violence, but knowing that we will not be able to rid the world of violence if we don't rid our own hearts of violence. So it's a both and, and I take that very seriously in my own life. Marianne Williamson, my guest, author of Tears to Triumph, The Spiritual Journey from Suffering to Enlightenment. Uh, 
you talked earlier about the Course in Miracles, and you talk about the Course in Miracles through your book. Uh, give me a, a talk about just miracles themselves. Many people think that a miracle kind of means magic, but in your chapter on forgiveness, you write, for example, that there's a way for us to find peace in our hearts regardless of someone else's behavior, and that itself is a miracle. Uh, what, yeah. what do you mean by a miracle? A miracle, as defined in books like A Course in Miracles, is a shift in perception from fear to love. You know, the, the fundamental metaphysical precept is that thought or consciousness is the cause of all manifestation in the world, which is very connected to what you and I were just talking about. So when my thoughts are loving, they affect the world one way. And if my thoughts lack love, they affect the world in another way. And uh, because every cause is followed by an effect, my choosing how I think is everything. So a miracle is when I choose to, to bless rather than blame. I choose to forgive rather than withhold forgiveness. I choose to atone for my own errors, make amends for them, seek to make restitution as opposed to refusing to look at my own part in the problems that have occurred. It's the choice to live in the present rather than attached to either past or future. So the miraculous mind and the miraculous mindset that is the crux of the, the journey we take out of darkened consciousness to enlightened consciousness is that journey from thoughts of fear to thoughts of love. And every thought that is not one of love is a thought of fear. And when we are thinking without love, we are using the mind in a way that it was not created or intended to be used, which then casts us into these regions of chaos and randomness that we then we see reflected in the world, in war, in, in poverty, in environmental degradation. As Gandhi said, the problem with the world is that humanity has lost its mind. And that's also why Martin Luther King said, the political desegregation of the American South is the political externalization of the, uh, uh, of the goal of the civil rights movement. He said, but the ultimate goal is the establishment of the beloved community. Because what he knew is that, yeah, you can desegregate the South, but the fact that there is segregation is itself a symptom rather than a cause. The cause is racism, and that is an internal reality. And so only the establishment of the beloved community, the purification of consciousness, will root out the problem on the level of cause so that these symptoms will not continue to simply morph and reappear. Speaking with Marianne Williamson, author of Tears to Triumph, The Spiritual Path from Suffering to Enlightenment. Thank you so much for this book and for being with me today. Thank you so much. I'm honored to have been here. You're listening to The Beloved Community on KBOO, KBOO 90.7. I'm John Shug. Next, I speak with Scott Brown, author of Active Peace, A Mindful Path to a Nonviolent World. Stay with us. This is The Beloved Community on KBOO. The Beloved Community explores the philosophical and spiritual foundations of nonviolence, peace building, and justice seeking. G. Scott Brown is the co-founder of the Colorado Center for Restorative Practices. Scott has been a longtime activist. He's worked for over 15 years with organizations including Greenpeace, the Idaho Conservation League, and the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. He's a leading advocate for consistent nonviolence and bringing the principles and practices of restorative justice to bear on the full range of social issues. He's traveling the country talking about his book, Active Peace, A Mindful Path to a Nonviolent World. He'll be in Portland Tuesday, August 16th from 6.30 to 8.30 at 2924 Northeast Flanders Street. More details at his website at 4activepeace.com. That's the number 4activepeace.com. Welcome, Scott, to the beloved community. Thanks, John. Really good to be with you. I want to begin with a story you wrote in your book. Uh, you were active with Greenpeace and, and had a television debate with a scientist from a pulp and paper mill in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, would you talk about uh, your work with Greenpeace and then what happened with this interview? Sure. I was with the Greenpeace Toxics Campaign. I was the regional 
uh, director out of the Run in the Southeast office out of Atlanta. And we were very involved in campaigning against the use of chlorine and trying to draw attention to chlorine pollution, dioxin from incinerators, dioxin and other chlorinated compounds from the pulp and paper industry. And so working with this particular mill in Mobile was one of my campaigns. And I got a debate organized with a scientist from the company. And as we started out the way that those things usually start out, I entrenched in my position and he entrenched in his position. And I was talking about alternatives to using chlorine in the paper bleaching process. And about probably three quarters of the way through the debate, when I realized there was no conclusive victory in sight, I really just went off on this guy and I started yelling at him to stop lying to people. Stop lying to people. And the producer of the person who was interviewing us uh, took a, uh, a frightened look at her technical people and the show was ended abruptly. And so what I, what I relate in the book about that is how my intention to go in there and save the earth all in the span of a half an hour, really it, it, that intention organized my, the way I showed up for that interview, my, my energy, my thoughts. And I had no openness to just letting it unfold organically. I, I had an agenda and I'm just left feeling like I would have been a much stronger advocate if I had been able to hold this capacity that I call not knowing, this other capacity of bearing witness, and was able to move through that interview, through my work back then in a more open-hearted way. So that story is in the book around this concept of intention, because that is so foundational to how we show up for life and for our social change work, for our activism. And I, so it's, it, it wasn't, a, it's not a fun story to relate. It was embarrassing, but that's who I was back then. I was as deeply embedded in the belief in separateness as anybody. And so I like to be really clear on that, that, that I'm I'm also healing that belief in separateness, which is really what the big theme in the book is healing the belief in separateness. You're listening to The Beloved Community on KBOO 90.7. My guest is Scott Brown, author of Active Peace, A Mindful Path to a Nonviolent World. Well, I appreciate that story in the book. You made yourself vulnerable. And and I started out with that um, because of that is so common. Um, in the way in which uh, we take up our causes. Uh, you see the political stuff going on right now. That's how everybody seems to do it. You, you, you get your point in and you do your thing, and the intention is to, is to win and have your voice heard, as you said. Uh, and, but that isn't necessarily effective in the outside world or within, is it? It's not. If it were, that would be one thing. But it's, it's not effective, and... It doesn't contribute to creating a truly life-affirming world. Now more than ever, and it's always been true, but now more than ever, I think we're called to use means that are consistent with the ends that we seek. And blame, shame, resentment, and fear are they don't work for changing the worldview, changing the beliefs of ourselves and other people in fundamental ways. One of the, the main points in the book is that this belief in separateness is not only an incredibly deep 
wound, but it's a worldview wound. We can't change other people's worldviews through force or acts of will or, or shaming and blaming. So the stage is really set for a very different way to approach our, our social change work and our activism. I'm, I'm pretty convinced that that realm of activity needs to change as much as the financial system and the transportation system and the political system if we're going to survive because we need that energy and that work. Well, talk about your work now. Uh, are you still involved in, in activism such as environmental activism? And, and how has this new holistic approach, active peace, um, transformed your thinking about say what Greenpeace uh, might be doing now uh, uh, or, or any of the other or the protest moments, Black Lives Matter, what, whatever it might be. How, how do you see your work integrating with those movements? Mm-hmm. Well, I do still engage in, um, in activism. The writing the book has, has been my, my activism for the most part mm-hmm. for the last five and a half years, believe it or not. And it's changed everything about who I am and how I show up. I can see more clearly not only the violence and feel it and grieve for the suffering and the pain in the world, but I can also appreciate much more fully the nonviolence that's in the world. Gandhi reminded us that if nonviolence and love were not our basic nature as human beings, we would have destroyed ourselves a long time ago. Hmm. And it, ju- it just makes sense that mm-hmm. regardless of how bad things seem, it could be a whole lot worse right now and, and would be if it weren't for this basic goodness that people have. And to see that, to experience it and feel it, you have to look pretty deep. You know, a lot of activists are not engaging in the world at that level. They, they see only, only red, only black, only the, the bad stuff. And yet I believe that this capacity to hold the paradox is essential in our time. And it gets at a deep level of, of truth-telling, you know, what's really true. And the violence and the nonviolence are true. The destruction and all of the delight in the world. That's what's true. It's all of it. It's paradox. Paradox is what holds the world together. The light and the dark, summer and winter. Um, and, and not only outside, but also within. We are peacemakers and we're violence makers. And owning up to that. Uh, oh, truth yeah. is part owning, of it, owning our part in the system mm-hmm. to the extent that we project all of the violence and insanity out onto a handful of other people or industries like the fossil fuel industry. We are not doing anything productive. That is not productive. The insanity is all around us. We're steeped in it. We participate in it, and we are also healing our own insanity. The root meaning of that word is not whole. And so I think most of us can feel in ourselves this longing for more wholeness, more open-heartedness, more resilience, more compassion. And at the same time, we're perfectly, we are perfectly whole and complete, just as we are. So yet another paradox. And John, I want to say about mindfulness as a foundation, really the basic foundation that I talk about is because we are already whole, ultimately. The work is to bring conscious awareness to it, to our experience. Same with our relationship to nature. We are already as 
deeply Mm -hmm. embedded and involved participating with nature as we're ever going to be. So the practice is just to notice that, to bring more and more consciousness to the way that we participate so intimately with nature and the need and the practice for reciprocity. Scott Brown is my guest on The Beloved Community. He's the author of Active Peace, A Mindful Path to a Nonviolent World. Uh, Father Daniel Berrigan died in May of this year. Uh, he was a peace activist for nearly all of his uh, uh, life as a priest. About 10 years ago, he was interviewed by Amy Goodman on Democracy Now!, and she asked him if his effects for peace were productive, and, and he said no. He said, my understanding of the spirituality of nonviolence is that you cut yourself free of any kind of necessity of succeeding. Uh, you cut yourself free of the other end of the good work you're trying to do and concentrate upon the goodness of the work you're trying to do. End quote. Would, would you resonate with that? I would very much. And that is, that's a radical approach to social change. That's a very spiritual approach to social change. And I find myself moving in that direction more and more. 20 years ago, when I was engaged in activism, I paid very little attention to to spirituality. That's why I would get in situations where I would um, do what I did to the to the scientist in that in that debate, because I didn't appreciate kind of the deeper work, the the deeper kind of the the mystery, the magic that really makes things happen in the world. And I, I think we, we get a taste of that in our own lives, that it's not, it's not us that are living this life and making it possible and feeling the love and bringing the compassion, that there's something mysterious in place, something larger than ourselves. And that is a tremendous shift that is uh, the revolutionary shift that I think we're called to not just know intellectually, but to feel deep in our bones, in ourselves. This sense of who and what we really are, because to the extent that we continue to move from the ego, the small sense of self, we're going to continue to be trapped in these cycles of violence and suffering. That is, that's a deep truth that, that Daniel Berrigan was, was alluding to, I think. G. Scott Brown, author of Active Peace, A Mindful Path to a Nonviolent World. And, and Scott, uh, you're talking, you're going around the country talking about your book, and you are going to be in Portland? I am. I am going to be in Portland um, the week of August 15th. And I have a a book talk scheduled on Tuesday, August 16th from 6.30 to 8.30 at a, it's a private household. There's a a woman who is uh, making this happen for me. The website is www.4activepeace.com and that's the number four for activepeace.com and there's lots of information about the book and my work and the book tour on that website so I encourage people to go there and to sign up on the website so that um, we can stay in touch. So tell me a little bit about uh, these conversations that you've had so far. What, 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 is, what has happened? What, uh, what have you learned? What have others learned? Well, I'm getting the feedback that it's very... Uh, interesting timing to be traveling the country talking about peacemaking, mm-hmm. given what's happening in our country and around the world. I notice a lot of people want really concrete tools. They want tools and there, there tends to be an energy around it of wanting to, really wanting to fix things. And so I find it really important to talk about how there is no quick fix to the predicament that we're in. Mm -hmm. 
People want to know, what would you do if, if you sat down to lunch with Donald Trump? <laughs> you know, that's very present in people, and it's very real. And so I talk about all of these, all of these qualities and these capacities as a way that might inform a meeting like that, that I am not going to change Donald Trump's worldview over lunch. But what I can do is just really try to be present to, to him and speak my truth in a way that's, that's authentic and honest and strong and also just bear witness to his truth without feeling like I have to fix it because I can't. And also in that context, John, I'm talking a lot about restorative justice and how we can still hold people accountable for the harm they cause and work to stay in our hearts. Scott Brown has been my guest on The Beloved Community. He's the author of Active Peace, A Mindful Path to a Nonviolent World. Scott, thanks for this book and thanks for being with me today. It's a pleasure, John. Thank you so much for having me. This is The Beloved Community on KBU Community Radio 90.7 KBOO. Up next, Jenna Yokoyama talks with me about her program, Pacific Underground, and the various challenges faced by Asian Pacific Islanders in Portland. Stay with us as we build the beloved community. This is KBOO Community Radio, KBOO 90.7. You're listening to the beloved community. Jenna Yokoyama is a Japanese-American. She co-hosts the show Pacific Underground on KBOO. It's heard on the fourth Friday every month at 11 a.m. She's with me on the beloved community to talk about a number of things, including the problem with Zen Trail Mix. Welcome, Jenna, to the beloved community. Thanks for having me. Tell me about your program, Pacific Underground. Pacific Underground is a show that focuses on social justice issues. Um, it's, it's primarily about the Asian American, um, Asian Pacific Islander experience here in Oregon. But we do talk about the larger like national issues. But it is run by people here at KBU, only volunteers out of KBU who are APA. What are some of the topics that uh, you talk about on the show? Uh, one of our recent shows was about um, mixed race identity, what it is to you know be half Asian, and what's that like to come from a bicultural background, and the challenges and the uniqueness that, that people um, who have that background face. Another show we did, which was my favorite show, was the food show. Mm -hmm. But that's probably just because we talked about all of our favorite restaurants here in Portland. And, you know, I mean, we also talked about what's problematic about food here in Portland, how um, a lot of the times, because Portland is white dominated, you know, the the food here is a little boring. Really? <laughs> it's a little boring to me. I, I grew up in Southern California where there's a lot of Asian American immigrants, you know, so the food is very authentic. And and this problem of um, white chefs cooking Asian food is not as big of an issue. I mean, it is definitely an issue nationwide, but up here in Portland, it, it's really predominant. And uh, an example would be like Pok Pok. Mm -hmm. People love that restaurant here. And I, I've eaten there, too. I don't think it's bad. I mean, but I also don't really understand what authentic Thai food is. I'm not Thai. And, um, you know, there's a there's a pushback from the Thai community because here's this white chef who has made their food popular, and he's the one getting all the accolades for it. And and here in the city, a lot of times people praise Pak Pak as being the best Thai restaurant in town. But I'm sure if you were to ask some Thai people, they would definitely argue that. Yeah. So what would they say would be the best? Uh, some of them say the best Thai restaurant it is in town. Well, actually, here at Kebu, we are located next to one of the absolute best Thai places in town, which is Nong's Kamangai, which if you've never been to Nong's, it's really different compared to if you went to what we think of as a, a Thai restaurant here. You know, they, they don't have all the curries and, and all that stuff. It, what she serves is Thai street food, which is chicken and rice. It's so simple, but I mean, Nang is the the creator of this, and she's just done phenomenally well. You know, she's had she has a food cart that then now has turned into this brick and mortar place, and she won Chopped on Food Network. You know, so there's mm. definitely chefs here who are making food from their cultural background and and offering authenticity. You say Asian, but that's a 
pretty big label. Oh, it's huge. What are the problems with using the, the just the simple word Asian American? Well, the first thing that's kind of problematic, I don't even want to say kind of, it is problematic, mm -hmm. is that the term Asia or Asian is not how Asian people themselves would define who they are. The concept of Asia and Europe is a white concept. It is a European concept, right? Who is relatively East and who is relatively West. Um, and so it's a way of looking at this huge region, essentially half of the world, through a European lens and saying, everybody who is you know, to the left or to the right of us is uh, in this one huge subgroup. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you go to Japan, like uh, I can only speak to uh, from Japan because I'm my family's from there. It's calling people Asian is is something kind of unusual to them. They that is an American more concept to them that we would see ourselves as Asian. They see themselves as Japanese or Korean or Chinese. They don't see themselves as kind of this unified culture like we think of it here in the United States. We say mm -hmm. the Asian district and. I think that your average American is pretty aware that we're not just saying like, oh, they're all just generically Asian. We, when we say Asian, we tend to have an understanding. We're talking about Chinese people, Japanese people, Vietnamese people, which, you know, in America, it seems okay. Mm. But when you really talk to these individual communities, what you find is that there's an erasure of their culture because they're just generically being put into this group of Asian. But it often erases what individual problems are happening for these communities, um, what their backgrounds are. You know, when you think about, say, uh, most Japanese Americans that you'll meet in this country, their family has been here from at least the 1900s or early 1900s, while when you meet most Vietnamese families, they came over in the 1970s. So mm. in terms of history and economic advantages and even what immigration laws they came under, it, it really varies. Um, and so you don't have a unified experience between Asian communities here in the United States, even though that's how they're viewed. And yet at the same time, that label needs to be used in some ways to um, advocate empowerment. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's I, I see why in Asia, you know, they don't they don't need this term of Asian. They don't need mm -hmm. to come together as a big continent. You know, they're they're governments that can support themselves. But here in the United States, um, especially here in Portland, because there are so few Asian Americans and Asian Pacific Islanders, uh, they're having to come together in order to have a voice because mm -hmm. otherwise you're you're. 0.1% of the population. But if all APIs join together, then they're, they're more like, you know, one or 2%. And so they do have a little bit more of a voice. And I find that really, really fascinating, because that's not how I grew up. I grew up in Southern California, where you have these very large groups. So, you know, the Chinese American community can kind of be in their own advocacy group. Well, that doesn't as happen as much up here. And it's simply just because of the numbers. And so I find it really fascinating that you see countries that are historically enemies, mm. like Korea and Japan or China and Japan, and you have these communities having to kind of let go of these historical hatred and, and having to come together and say, like, well, we need to advocate for each other despite the past. And I think that's easier, you know, for immigrant children who don't have that historical tie to the past. But it's definitely still there. And it's something that the Asian American community constantly has to overcome in order to stay unified. And it's a struggle. Does it take uh, a generation or two or three or more? I think it does. You know, recently um, on social media, this really interesting letter went around about Black Lives Matter. And it was a it was a crowdsourced letter written by young Asian Americans for their parents or for their grandparents. Historically, uh, most Asian cultures are anti-black, and I'll just say it, they are very racist. And I think it has mm. a history of ignorance, um, like you know, most racism is embedded in. But it's hard to explain to your parents from Asia who have no experience of growing up in diversity what it is to want to advocate for black Americans. And so they had to write this letter that was crowdsourced by hundreds of and hundreds of people you know, to just explain this concept. So, you know, it, I can see why young APIs were able to do this, because in the letter they said, 
you know, black Americans have been our friends. They're the people that we go to the dances with and we do homework with and we play sports with. And their parents have no concept of that. And so I think the the older generation has a hard time advocating because they're still feeling a bit of oppression. They're still feeling a bit of um, exotification about themselves. And so they're looking at their kids like, well, what do, what do they have to do with us? And mm. I think young APIs see that it is an inclusive struggle for all people of color. And, and they're trying to lead that struggle right now. Looking at the American cities on the West Coast here, we got Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, let's say L.A., San Diego. Is Portland the least diverse? Yeah, I think it really it, here in Portland – we're in this really interesting city. I, I've i only lived here for the last three years, and mm-hmm. I was really surprised when I moved up here because I, I was living in San Francisco, and the concept of Portland was that Portland was this really progressive. Right. It is progressive, but it tends to be a politically progressive place for white people. Mm-hmm. And so – you have to constantly be breaking down these barriers and explaining to people who view themselves as progressive and view them as liberal and saying like, look, you may love your you know, green waste bin and that's great, but that doesn't mean that people aren't experiencing racism. Somehow that's connected and, and you're constantly having to break this concept. Jenna Yokoyama is my guest. She's the co-host of Pacific Underground on KBU. You're listening to The Beloved Community on KBOO 90.7. Tell me specifically, what are some of the things that you need to educate white folks about? Well, let's talk about Zen Trail Mix. <laughs> Zen Trail Mix. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Zen Trail Mix. So, uh, like, the other day I was at... We'll call it a very well-known market here in Portland. And they have this stuff that's called Zen Party Mix. This drives me nuts because I see this everywhere. It's not just the full market. I see it at Safeway, Albertsons, every single store um, in the bulk sections. And I've, I've watched this trail mix for years and have just always thought it was so weird that there was Zen Party Mix. And so the classic Portland example is that finally the other day I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to speak up about it and, and see what the manager says. So I go uh-huh. to the manager and I say, you know, you have this this product that's a little bit racist. And they they look worried, genuinely worried, like, oh, God, yeah, please tell us your problem. And I say, you know, you have this thing called Zen Party Mix. And to me, like, if I were to say that to another person of color, they would immediately, like, facepalm, shaking the head, and they would understand why I find this problematic. But this manager just didn't really seem to get why. Um, And I said, well, you know, imagine in your mind if you saw Zen Party Mix, and right next to it is Jewish Party Mix. And he still didn't seem to get it. And I said, (laughs) and the next to that is Muslim Party Mix. And then next to that is Catholic Party Mix. And the minute I said Catholic Party Mix, you just saw this kind of like, oh, this moment where he got it. Uh. I was like, that would be awkward, right? Because here's the other thing. It's not as though the Zen party mix has anything to do with the actual religion. You're just generically naming something that's generically Asian, and you're naming it after a religion that is actually tied to real people's real sense of spirituality and sense of culture and their history and their ancestors and how they view the world. So to just put it on party mix is problematic. And I tried to explain a little bit that it's basically, you might as well just call it oriental party mix. You're just trying to replace Mm. this generic idea that this is an Asian-y snack. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to stick an Asian-y word. And so I, I, I further explained, you know, this is, Zen is more than just a cool term. Unfortunately, here in the United States, we have this new term that's like, I'm so Zen. And mm-hmm. I don't even think people know what that is because I'm like, if you've ever tried to be a Zen monk, it is not fun. No, it's, and it it's is not work. Fun. It's work. <laughs> I could not be a Zen monk. Even if I fully believed in it, I would fail, fail, fail because it is not peaceful. Uh, it's, it's a lot of work to attain peace. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, then I also mentioned the other problematic snack there, which were the feng shui crackers. Um, it's just another brand. Mm-hmm. And I explained to them. I've worked in grocery stores before. I understand how distribution works. But you guys should have a problem with carrying things like this. 
And he didn't really seem to understand the feng shui, so I explained again, you know, this is the same thing, kind of zen. This is, this is not just a fun thing to say. This is not just about furniture arrangement. These are really ancient concepts that are tied to people's cultures and sense of being. And I really think you guys need to look at this. Uh, I don't know if anything came of that. I, I stopped in that store this morning. It's where I, I grab coffee often. And the zen party mix was on sale, so... Now you can get it on sale, and the feng shui crackers were still there. Uh, their response to me was to give me a comment card huh. and told me to make sure to write the corporate office because I'm sure they'd really want to know. The initial employee that helped me out um, told me that she she helped me get a manager because she said, well, you seem really passionate about this. And I just huh. wanted to shake her and be like, no, woman, I'm not passionate it's, about yeah. this. I'm a Offended. This is offensive. As if it's about you. I'm just so sorry you feel that way. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And what I and, and you know, I think one thing that is really interesting is people say like, well, you know, it's just one woman complaining. What's what's the problem? You know, I often hear that mm -hmm. from people. Well, it's just one person complaining. I'm thinking. I'm trying to think of other other offensive products that would could possibly be out there. Virgin Mary mangoes or uh, Voodoo donuts. Voodoo donuts. There you go. That's uh, yeah, another I mean, one. Voodoo is a is a religion. People don't realize that. Yeah, that it is a real religion that is uh -huh. still actively practiced. Mm -hmm. I'm sure by people here in Portland. There's there's probably not an area that where people aren't practicing it, and it's been reduced to this very cute donut with a pretzel yep. sticking out of it, um, and I. And it would be more okay with me if, say, actual voodoo practitioners somehow were tying these donuts to their practice, but it's not. You know, it, it's right. just this viewing of another culture or viewing of another religion, you know, and just exoticizing it and saying, oh, hey, look, we got a cute donut. And now, I mean, Voodoo Donuts is going to open, their, their plan is to open 50 stores in 50 states. Hmm. And they're not wow. addressing that. It's frustrating, but, you know, I do see that there is a shift happening in society mm -hmm. and that people are, are even more open to just talking about these things. I feel like even 20 years ago, you could say, like, voodoo donut, and people would say, oh, well, I know it's problematic, but uh, but I feel like we're getting into a time of more enlightenment mm -hmm. where people I – mean, I think it's because of the internet oftentimes – is that more people are having a larger voice – you know, they're allowed to just full on say, hey, people, you can no longer have an excuse to not know why voodoo donut is problematic. Google the term voodoo, you know. And so we, right. we now live in a time where you can say, like, here's why it's problematic. I'm not the only one who's saying this. Here is a plethora of voices coming together. So I, I think times are changing. I'm hoping that they're changing because, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Well, they aren't changing, you know, just because they're changing. They're changing because people like yourself and others speak out and say, hey, mm -hmm. this is a problem. And, and and the more we do speak out and the more we speak out together and, and uh, the more things will change and do change. It's happening all the time. I, I see that it's happening. Jenna, thanks so much uh, for, for what you do and for being with me today. Oh, thank you for having me on. Jenna Yokoyama has been my guest on The Beloved Community. She co-hosts Pacific Underground on the fourth Friday of every month at 11 a.m. on KBOO 90.7. On The Beloved Community, we address the philosophical and spiritual foundations for nonviolence, activism, political engagement, and peace building. We also hear voices who are building The Beloved Community right here in Portland. The goal is to gain inspiration, solidarity, wisdom, and insight for your own activism. I'm John Shuck. I host a weekly half-hour podcast called Progressive Spirit. Contact me through my website, progressivespirit.net. Be well. Thank you.